Good morning, church. Good to be here with you all today. How about some winds? Right? We could all use some winds on a day like this. A little rain outside. Things have been rough this past week. A lot of difficult things going on in the world. But ministry is happening. So just to review, in the month of August, we had the great giveaway. And we had a number of requests from community uh, family members that are here in this area that we're praying for. Friends, we're praying for our community. That's a win. Last week, our fellowship team got together and helped put on a wonderful picnic, a great time of fellowship. Big thank you. And I want to give a round of applause to our fellowship team. That's a win. Great time of fellowship outside, beautiful weather. Fellowship team, way to not schedule it for this Sunday. Good job. <laughs> a few weeks ago, we had a desperate need for Awana volunteers. A number of volunteer openings. As of today, we are fully staffed for our Awana ministry this upcoming year. That's a win. Big win. One slight minor deviation, the uh, kickoff that was supposed to be today is going to be rescheduled for next week. So just keep that in mind. We won't have the Awana kickoff this Sunday. It'll be next Sunday. But a lot of ministry happening. We got to hear about sowers this morning. Uh, at the end of the service today, we are going to get to pray for Jeff and Ann as they prepare to head back to Germany. Uh, Judy is with us from Lemuel Ministries today, so it's wonderful to see her representing Haiti here uh, with her daughter as well, and David and Ginger. And so, so many wonderful things happening that we can celebrate together as a CNBC family today. Let's say our monthly memory verse, this for the month of August from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God, 1 Corinthians 8, 3. Well, we have been studying 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We are actually going to finish 1 Corinthians chapter 7 today. And 1 Corinthians chapter 7 covers a number of different topics related to singleness, related to being widowed, related to being divorced, and marriage as well. And speaking of marriage, what do you know in here about the phrase, marriage is bliss? Right? I was joking with my wife this week that sometimes I'm not sure if it was more difficult to translate Greek or to translate her. <laughs> but she is far more fun to translate, that's for sure. Sheila and I, our first taste of marital bliss came the summer before my senior year of college. We were newlyweds. We were living in Scranton. Sheila was working in a local hospital while I was finishing school, coaching football, and working for a company called National Running Center. Now that we were married, there was this unusual reality that had started to sink in. It seemed that in marriage, we actually were seeing less of each other as a married couple than we did as a dating or engaged couple. 
College, coaching, her job, the unique hours of mine, left us as ships passing in the night. I would often leave on a Thursday or Friday evening and be away all weekend only to return late Sunday night or early Monday morning from my job. We joke now, uh, after 18 years of marriage, about the times I would get home from a road trip around 1 a.m. on Monday morning, utterly worn out, desperately hungry. She would be sound asleep in her bed. I would run into the bedroom, jump into bed, and say, hey, let's go on a date to Denny's. (laughs) She would hide any begrudging feelings and, of course, spring up. And we would head off sitting at Denny's in Scranton around 1.30 or 2 in the morning, her having to work later that day and me having to return or sleep through my college classes. I don't know how I passed and graduated. It was by the grace of God. And it was also by his grace that we made it through. And in many ways, I think the unusual circumstances of our early years of dating, engagement, and marriage prepared us for the difficult times that we face together today as a couple. We learned very early on in marriage one of the lessons that Paul is exploring in this part of his letter, that marriage is not all peachy kisses and red roses. There's difficulties. And even still, as it is with the single person who lives in the fullness of their calling, there is also something about the married couple living in the fullness of their calling that is good and pleasing to the Lord. Keeping that in view, there is still lurking this ever-present threat of being carried away, worn down, consumed with the anxieties and the pressures and the discomforts and distresses and disappointments of living in today's world as single or married. And so two weeks ago, we spent time studying Paul's primary focus of this chapter. If we remember three times, Paul had repeated his charge that one way we demonstrate abiding in Christ is to live within the assignment and the calling that he has placed in our lives. And we keep this in view as we move to what will be our last session together in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you have your Bibles today... You want to take and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 25 to 40. Paul has wisdom here for us. Wisdom to help us function together as a church in an overwhelmingly unbelieving world. It's wisdom that anchors us to an eternal perspective while also moving us towards a laser focus on the one who is truly deserving of our undivided devotion, regardless of the calling or assignment that we're currently living in. Starting with verses 25 to 31, we'll read our text in sections today as Paul has divided each section for a specific purpose. And before we read, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word today. We thank you for this time that we can gather around it as a body of Christ here in the building and at home. And as we look to your word today, Lord, every single one of us is living in the calling, the current calling and current assignment that you have for our lives. And for each one of us, there are unique difficulties and 
unique circumstances that we face in our calling and assignment that challenge us to keep our undivided devotion and focus on you. And indeed, that would be our heart's desire. We pray that as we open your word today, you would guide us, instruct us, motivate us and move us according to your intended purposes. We'll give you the glory in Jesus name. Amen. Starting in verse 25 of chapter 7. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they have no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. There is a present distress. Does anyone in here today know of any present distresses in our world today? Many. It was not easy to live as a disciple of Jesus in Rome, there were many stressors that were placed upon the people of God living in Corinth. We have already shared earlier in this study how early believers were persecuted as irreligious, heretical. They were tormented. They were considered to be anti-Caesar, political conspirators, some even considered as cannibals. Early Christians suffered under the hands of governors and prefects and Rulers who faced social pressures to do away with what they saw as this new and disruptive way of life. And for the early church, their lives and the reception of their message often followed the life and reception of Christ himself, who proved to be disruptive in both the religious and the public spaces. And so early on, there was an explosion of the church and this new band of people were described as followers of the way. And they proved disruptive to the comfortably assigned social and political realities. Paul has already clued us into these distresses earlier in his letter. You remember 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 11 when Paul said to this present hour, we hunger and thirst, we're Poorly dressed, buffeted, homeless. Whatever season of life one happened to live in, each season brought enough trouble of its own. And in view of that reality, Paul's ideal follows at the end of verse 26. Look down again at what he says. It is good for a person to remain as they are. Are you bound to a spouse? Remain married. Are you free from a spouse? 
do not seek one. All who marry will increase their worldly troubles. Paul wants to spare the people of God of these quote-unquote worldly troubles. And all of this falls in line with Paul's previous teaching in 1 Corinthians 7 that each person should lead the life that the Lord has assigned and to which God had called them. And what we also see, Paul's tone in this instruction, is that he has a continued desire to relate to the faith community as a spiritual father. Remember, he had identified this earlier in his letter. I do not write these things to make you feel ashamed, but rather to admonish you. He wanted to be to them as a spiritual father. And what we come to find is that good fathers and mothers prepare their children for the world which they will inhabit, the world in which God has planted them and called them to go into and make disciples from. And so Paul goes on to express what he means. The appointed time is growing short. The end of all things is near. It's the idea, friends, that we see over and over in the Bible that our life is but a vapor. And if the Lord does not return before he calls us home, our time here on earth, in view of eternity, will soon be over. A person's status as being married or being single isn't the primary priority. Rather, there's an eternal perspective, a higher priority, and it's whether or not we've been given the right to be called sons and daughters of God. And Paul is giving a charge to the people of God to keep a proper perspective on their calling and their assignment. You know, I was on the phone the other day with an administrator from Slanko School District. And we were talking. And he was sharing some concerns with me. And he began to talk about how he identifies as all of these different things. Father, husband, coach. All of these are assignments. All of these are callings. But none of them should be given higher or greater priority than the most important of all, which is what? Being known as a child of God. That is the most important thing. And Paul wants us to keep that in proper perspective. Look down at verse 29. He begins to talk about uh, a way that we should be going about and living our lives here on earth. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time's growing short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they're not mourning. And those who rejoice as, those, as though they're not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. For those of us who are in here that are married, we must take care that our spouse does not cause us to lose focus on that which really matters. If there's one in here who's mourning today or there's one who's watching that's rejoicing, we need to be careful that the cause of our mourning and the cause of our rejoicing does not gain our first allegiance. 
If one has a big savings account, Paul says, buy as though you have no goods. Give it away. Verse 31, the literal translation of verse 31 is this. Those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. And I actually think the NIV and the CSB do a better job with this translation than the ESV here. And so I put that verse up in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 31. The NIV says it like this. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. And just as we're to not allow our current assignment or calling in life to define who we are, we must not allow the things of this world to consume us. It's so important. You look around the world today and it seems like everything is geared towards consumption. And Paul says everything is useful, but not everything is profitable. And we need to be careful that we're not mastered by anything. There is nothing on this world, on this earth, worth getting wholly engrossed and tied up in. As I said earlier, we can find so often we can find our identity in our profession. And that's a big thing in our world today. What's the first thing that people often ask when you're getting to know somebody? What's the first question? What do you do? It's a priority for us. But what we do does not define who we are. And just like being a father, it's a great calling. It's not my highest calling. Being a husband to Sheila, it's a great calling. I love it. Not my highest calling. Being a pastor at Calvary Monument Bible Church, it's a great calling. I love it. Not my highest calling. The highest, most important call on my life, where I need to find my identity, where we need to find our identity, is in Christ. Paul wants us to keep an eternal perspective. A calling is a calling. And we're to live as we are called. But we are not to become engrossed in our status. Nor give our undivided devotion to something that is unworthy of it. As the present form of our world passes away. We have great hope for the future church. Eternity is vast and marvelous and free from the present distress that troubles our hearts and minds today. And so as we keep that eternal perspective in view, look at what Paul does next. He's going to set course to navigate us towards the one who is truly deserving of our undivided devotion. Look down at verses 32 to 35. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how 
to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay a restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. It is one of Paul's desires that as the people of God, certainly that we would be free from the anxieties related to our status in the eyes of the world. The one who is single stays anxious about the things of the Lord. That's the ideal. Yet for the married one, Paul describes there can easily become an anxiety that's consuming about how to please one's spouse. Right? We've all heard this before. I'm going to say a few quotes that I know you have all heard before. My wife does not like when I use them. I just want to let you know this. Happy wife, happy life. It's your universe, I just inhabit it. Whatever you want, honey. It's stressful. It is hard sometimes, right? For the, for the spouse and the marriage, the husband or the wife to please the other, we can get wrapped up and consumed in trying to please one another. Paul says we need to avoid that, that that is not where our focus should be. His concern for the married is that their interests do not become divided, single or married, either way, we're to live as a fragrant offering to the Lord. And the couple who is married, who prioritizes honoring and serving the Lord first, will honor and serve one another well and will likely find a long and fulfilling marriage relationship. Serve and honor the Lord first, then you'll serve and honor one another well and the marriage relationship will be long and fulfilling. Paul again addresses this ideal in verse 34. The unmarried or engaged woman who remains fixed on the Lord is more concerned about the holiness in her body and spirit than on pleasing her husband. These are considerations that Paul is shepherding the people of God towards. Notice he says, I'm not trying to lay a law on you here. Or a code, a new code, or a new standard of conduct. He's not saying that people shouldn't get married, nor is he saying that everyone has to get married. What Paul is doing here is he's calling us to count the cost of the investments that the most intimate relationships in our lives demand. The most intimate relationships in our lives often demand the highest level of energy and commitment. The investment is great. We should count the cost. Paul's desire here is to see good order in the church, in the relationships. In marriage, keeping the perspective that first we belong to God, then we belong to one another. Too much emphasis on pleasing one or the other only leads to stressing one another out. So as Paul describes in verse 35, keeping an eternal perspective, we are to do what? What does verse 35 say? Secure your un 
divided devotion to the Lord. He must have first place. Amen? Amen. He must have first place to the single or to the married, to the widowed. He must have first place. And when the Lord gets our undivided devotion, we thrive in whatever assignment and calling that we have been given. So with all of this instruction regarding marriage and the potential for divided loyalties and the concern for pleasing the Lord, did it even make sense for the one who was betrothed or engaged, a word we use today, to actually consider moving towards marriage or should they just put it off altogether? Paul will now give guidance for the engaged or betrothed. Look down at verses 36 to 38. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. When Paul uses the word betrothal here in verse 36, it was kind of like our engagement period today, but not exactly the same. In this case, with betrothal, the bride-to-be, the one who was betrothed, would remain at home until her groom was able to secure suitable living conditions and bring his house into order. At which point, when the time was right, he would come back to get her and take her to his home. The betrothed couple in Rome would see one another far less often than engaged couples in our culture do. Right? I mean, engaged couples in, in our culture, they see each other all the time. That was not the case back then. For a man who was betrothed, Paul's saying if his passions were strong towards his bride-to-be, it was better that they marry than stumble into sexual sin, where for the woman of the relationship, she would be at risk losing her virginity. We have to understand the role that this played in ancient Rome, a young woman's virginity was highly valued. It was not only a condition, but it was also often a requirement for the marriage contract. If a young woman who was unmarried, she was only betrothed, were to lose her virginity in a fit of passion, it would have been a serious offense to her family and a serious problem for herself in terms of securing a future husband, especially if her betrothed were to then up and leave before marrying her. The protection here that Paul is given in verse 36 is in the best interest of the bride to be, her reputation and her family. 
And again, something that we've commonly seen throughout chapter 7, and if you want to go back and read the whole chapter again, you're going to see this. And even in chapter 6 and and chapter 5, there's this specter of sexual immorality that's kind of loomed in the backdrop. If there is temptation towards sexual sin, it is better to marry than to burn with these passions for one another. Now, later in his ministry, Paul would give instruction to Timothy that would protect young widows, where he would encourage this. This is 1 Timothy 5.14. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, give the adversary no occasion for slander. Here again, in Timothy, the reason Paul gives for this instruction is so that there would be no occasion for slander, that sexual immorality would not become an issue and that a person's personal holiness might be preserved. And so Paul concludes this in verse 36. Look at what he says. It is no sin to marry. There's no sin to marry. And all of those who are married in here said, thank you, Paul. <laughs> all of this. And yet. Seemingly from what Paul wrote here, there were some bridegrooms who were able to control their desires. For those who were betrothed to such a man, marriage may have been a far off, more far off than near reality. And in those days, couples could indeed have been betrothed at a very young age and betrothal could have lasted a very long time, years even in some cases. The woman in those times did not always have the freedom to choose her partner. Often this was a father and mother's choice and often family relationships, acquaintances played a part in the union of two individuals. And to go along with all of this, keep in mind these present distresses that were among the people at the time of Paul's writing. Paul thought that the Lord was coming, that it was imminent. He regularly suggests that the people were living in the end of days. And you know what? 2,000 years later, in some ways, he was correct. Friends, we are living in light of the Lord's return. He is coming soon. Amen. He's coming again soon. And we live with that posture. We are not naive to that. And we believe that. And certainly it does us no harm to live this way with this mentality, with the mindset that the Lord can and will return at any moment. It helps us keep a clear perspective when the distresses of our day begin to overwhelm us. One day, Jesus is going to return. Much of what we are involved in here, see now, or a part of, maybe even our calling and assignment, will be no more. And much of what we stress about today will be largely unimportant in view of eternity. Paul is not saying here, he's not being wishy-washy, he's not not saying, look people, just, just do whatever you want. Rather, He's saying, in view of eternity, keeping all things in their proper perspective, the one who marries his betrothed will do well. But listen to this. This is pretty poignant. The one who refrains from marriage will do 
even better. I have some friends in my life that are, I guess are doing even better than me. And as we wind down our study of chapter 7, I'd like to take us back to the consideration that we gave at the beginning of the chapter, particularly in number 3. This is not Paul's entire teaching on marriage, singleness, widowhood, or divorce. When we teach through books of the Bible, which is our habit here at Calvary Monument, most of the time we're teaching through a book of the Bible, we are not afforded the time to cover exhaustively every topic that comes up in the text. And such is the case here. Could there be much more to be said about marriage, about singleness, about widowhood, about divorce? Absolutely. Absolutely. But we do not have the time to cover it all as we explore this text together. So as Paul concludes his thoughts on this matter, he fittingly ends with a discussion surrounding what happens when one member of the marriage passes on. Look down at verses 39 and 40. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I, too, have the spirit of God. And Paul allows for the one who loses their spouse and death to remarry if they desire. But he gives one caveat, and that's that they should remarry someone who knows the Lord. And isn't it interesting? Paul's judgment, as he suggests, is that the person who loses a spouse may be happier in their singleness Avoiding all of these anxieties and stressors that come up again in the marriage relationship. Some scholars have actually suggested, if you were curious about the last line of verse 40, some scholars have suggested that Paul's last sentence of chapter 7 is actually poking at those within the community of faith who thought uh, within themselves that they were wiser or more spiritual or maybe had better insight than Paul did. On these matters. And Paul's assuring the faith community in Corinth that he too had the Spirit of God and was able to make discernments and give instruction to the church on these issues, even in his current calling as single. So we ask in view of what we've studied today how do we live as disciples of Jesus and function together as his church? In an overwhelmingly unbelieving world. And we might say this. Navigating our present distress. With a view that's fixed on eternity. We live with undivided devotion to the Lord. Single or married. We fulfill the call of God. On our lives. In every season he brings to us. As we consider that our team is going to come today. And we're going to close with my Jesus, I love thee.